This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. Mysteriously Listed is a podcast dedicated to people who are interested in true crime. Maybe you're interested in a topic, but don't know if you want to commit to an hour-long podcast on just one particular case. Mysteriously Listed will share with you the top 10 true crime stories and mysteries in each themed episode, which will give you a teaser on each case. If you're fascinated by true crime stories, unsolved mysteries, serial killers and mass murders, we would love for you to subscribe. Mysteriously Listed is an Insight podcast production and will drop episode one, Unsolved Mysteries Australia, on Sunday, March 11, 2018. My name is Ali and this is Insight. I'm here with Charlie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. We have a new puppy in the family that is keeping life interesting, I guess you could say. Today we are revisiting a case we covered for a Patreon episode probably around a year ago now. We still are getting requests to cover this case as a full-length episode, so that's what we're doing today. Today we're covering the 1990 unsolved murders at the Cruises Bowl. On the morning of Saturday, February 10, 1990, Stephanie Sinek arrived at the La Cruises Bowl, which was a popular bowling alley in the area. The bowling alley also had a snack bar with a full kitchen. There was an on-site childcare drop-off for bowlers to leave their kids while they played. There was an arcade area with pool tables and arcade games and a bar. It was a pretty big place. Stephanie's father owned the bowling alley and Stephanie was the manager. Her two brothers, Steve and RJ, they also worked at the alley. This morning, though, Stephanie went in early to add up the receipts from Friday before making a deposit. She was there with her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, Ida, the bowling alley's cook, was also there early prepping the snack bar for the day. Ida had just switched from the evening shift to the day shift because she wanted to spend more time with her mother in the evenings. Amy Hauser was Melissa's 13-year-old friend. She was dropped off that morning by her stepfather to spend the day with them. Melissa and Amy were going to help with the childcare centre. At around 8.15 in the morning, Steve Senak stopped at the bowling alley to pick up his backpack. He had a morning class and had left his bag behind the night before when he was working. He saw two men walking through the parking lot, so when he went in to get his backpack, he told his sister Stephanie that she needed to keep the front door locked when the alley wasn't opened to the public. Melissa and Amy were hungry and asked Stephanie if they could get something to eat. Ida was still getting the snack bar prepped, so Stephanie gave them some change to get a snack out of the vending machine. They left the office when Stephanie was working at around 8.20. 
In the main part of the bowling alley, they saw two men with guns. The older of the two men ordered them at gunpoint back into the office. The younger man went into the kitchen area. Ida was expecting a man to come into the bowling alley since they were waiting on Stephen Turin, who was the alley's mechanic, to come fix some of the equipment. Only this wasn't Steve. The man put a gun to Ida's side and directed her to the office as well. These men made no attempt to conceal their identity. They were not wearing masks and they were not wearing gloves. While this was taking place at the bowling alley, 26-year-old Stephen Tehran was heading into work. He had just handed in his two weeks' notice, actually. He was looking forward to moving on to the next phase of his life. He had a fairly typical Saturday morning at home. He was going to work and his wife was going to her Saturday classes. They had two young daughters, Paula, age six, and Valerie, age two, and they were going to the babysitter. But then the babysitting plans that they had fell through, though, so Stephen decided to take the two girls with him. He figured he could leave the girls in the alley's childcare room while he worked. Stephen walked through the door with Valerie and Paula, but the place was empty. He headed to the office, presumably to check in with Stephanie, as the bowling alley was supposed to open soon. And he had to drop the girls off with the teens so he could work. When he entered the office, he had both of his little girls with him, and they would have had to have been terrified when they walked in to see Stephanie, Ida, Melissa, and Amy all face down on the ground while two men with guns rifled through the office. It's believed Stephen, in part due to his military training perhaps, made some attempt to fight back, but the men were both armed, and he also had his little girls with him. The men ordered Stephen to the ground with his girls, and they continued to search the office. Ida later reported that it seemed as if the men were looking for something in particular— One man was repeatedly shouting at the group to keep their heads down and to not look at them. In the safe, the men took somewhere between four and five thousand dollars. Both amounts are reported, but what is more important to note here is that they didn't take all of the money. There was some money left in the safe. The second man yelled to keep their heads down one more time, and it appeared to them the or and it had to have appeared to them that maybe the ordeal was over. The men had the money, so surely they were going to take off. But instead, they shot every single one of them at close range. Five of them were shot in the head. Some of them were shot more than once, with an estimated 25 rounds being fired into the seven victims, with three to five rounds being shot into some of them. Before leaving, the gunmen then set the desk on fire using papers that were in the office already, and they fled. No one saw them leave, though due to how quickly they were able to get out of the bowling alley in broad daylight, completely unseen, it's believed they may have had a vehicle nearby or they may have taken refuge somewhere nearby, perhaps an apartment or a house. There were some early reports of a green four-wheel drive vehicle, possibly a van, in the area. Amy, Stephen, and Paula died instantly at the scene. Valerie would die later on the way to the hospital. In spite of being shot five times in the head and upper body, Melissa was still conscious. And remember, Melissa is only 12 years old. 
but she got up and called 911 at 8.29. Her school had just done a 911 training lesson the week before, so it was still fresh in her memory, and it's possible that reinforcement is why she was able to have it together enough to call. The 911 call, which you can hear in the documentary about this unsolved murder, it's absolutely devastating. Melissa told the dispatcher that she was shot five times. She was in a lot of pain and she believed she was the only one conscious. She couldn't give a description of the men except to say that they were both black. She said she didn't know if the men were still in the building, which only illustrates her courage more. She didn't know if they were going to come back into the office and see she wasn't dead, yet she took the chance to call for help. The 911 operator told her to stay on the line and she was able to tell him exactly where first responders needed to go through the bowling alley to get to the office where they all were and where the fire was. She mentions in the call wanting to get the fire extinguisher to put the fire out, but it's unclear if she did this. When officers arrived, they could smell the smoke and because of Melissa's directions that were being told to them from the dispatcher, they were able to go straight to the office. They told Melissa to come with them, but she said the dispatcher said she needed to stay on the phone. So he assured her that it was okay to hang up the phone then and to go with the officers. What would have been going through Melissa's mind while this happens is unthinkable. I've seen crime scene photos of this. And if you watch the documentary, A Nightmare in Las Cruces, you will be able to see the horrifying situation that Melissa would have found herself in. She would have been in huge amounts of pain. Her mother had been shot and she doesn't know if her mother's alive or dead at this point. She said she kept her head down when she left the office so she didn't see everyone else. But she did see Valerie, who was the littlest, and she said that that still haunts her to this day. The strength of this girl is remarkable. Emergency services only knew that there were seven victims, with one alive but seriously hurt. Their first goal was to remove everyone from the office that was on fire and to put the fire out. So everyone was taken into the main area of the bowling alley where it was determined that Stephen and little Paula had already died, as had Amy. The others were transported to the hospital. Valerie lived for 45 minutes, and she died at or shortly before arriving at the hospital. I've seen it reported both. Melissa, Stephanie, and Ida were in intensive care in critical condition. Stephen's wife Audrey was in class that morning and she heard sirens go by in the morning. When her class had a break, she called the bowling alley to check on how Stephen and the girls were doing, but she didn't get an answer. Later, while on her lunch break, she caught the very end of a news report about the shooting of seven people. She had tried to call the bowling alley again and again, but got no answer. She decided to have a friend bring her down there just to see what was going on when another student came in and asked if anyone had heard about the shooting at the bowling alley. She and her friend immediately went there. A uniformed police officer asked her who she was and she said her family was inside the bowling alley. A detective came over to talk to her. They had her sit in the police car while he broke the news to her. He said Valerie was transported to the hospital, so Audrey immediately went there to see her daughter, but was told when she got there that she hadn't survived. 
Amy's mother had gotten a phone call at work that there was a shooting at the bowling alley and knowing her daughter was there, she headed over. She knew one of the officers on the scene and he told her she needed to get to the hospital. Again, like with Audrey, she was pulled aside and told her daughter hadn't made it. We just need to take a quick break for a word about one of our sponsors this week, ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites and waiting, waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The investigation of the scene was set up with some obstacles from the start. The fire itself had damaged a lot of the office and potential evidence. And of course, the efforts to put out those flames and in trying to save the rest of the building, that also washed away evidence. With the priority to help the survivors, the building was not immediately secured. Statements from the survivors, of course, were then delayed due to trauma. All of this is entirely understandable. None of this is an instance where we're seeing the investigation go wrong. These obstacles had to happen in this situation, but it is unfortunate that these stumbling blocks were put up from the start. The entire building was searched, including the roof, in case the perpetrators were hiding up there, or perhaps they had left some evidence like they threw the guns up there, but nothing was found. Another problem was the available forensic technology. We're talking 1990. Less than three years earlier was the first DNA-based conviction in the U.S. DNA collection and analysis was not at the level it is today. Admissibility of DNA had recently been argued in People v. Castro. DNA was still under debate in 1990, and the sensitivity of the tests weren't anywhere near what they are today. Fingerprints were still a huge focus of forensic investigations, but our crime scene, of course there were fingerprints. This was a bowling alley. Hundreds of people went in and out of this business daily. Of course they were able to collect fingerprints from the bowling alley, the snack bar, the office, the arcade, pretty much everywhere. But without the ability to date those fingerprints, they were worthless. It was mostly just a collection of people in Las Cruces who liked to go bowling. However, in a March 2015 interview, police investigator Amador Martinez said that they are still processing evidence that had been collected using new technology. Some DNA results had come back, but he wouldn't comment on what those results were at the time, and he said additional evidence had been sent in. 
As to why they're sending it in in batches like this, it's basically they don't want to overtax the lab. And the most pertinent evidence would have been sent in first. When that comes back, they can send in more based on the new information they have from the first batch or possibly what they need to to confirm any previous results. With the scene not secured but the victims being tend to, they did set up roadblocks and these were set up all over heading out of town while they were processing the crime scene still. All the cars were stopped and the drivers were questioned. One car had four men in it and that was stopped and a large sum of money was found in their car. They brought the only possible witness who wasn't injured, Steve Senak, to the checkpoint. Remember, he saw the two men in the parking lot when he went to pick up his backpack. He said that none of these men were the men he saw. But even the head detective, Mark Myers, at the time, concedes that the roadblocks may have been too late. If the men took the money, committed the murders and fled before the 911 call was even placed... It's really likely that they had already gotten out of town, if they were intending to get out of town, that is. If they were still in the city, they were probably off the streets and hunkered down somewhere. It was very early on on that first day that the state police were called in. This was considered the worst crime to have happened in Las Cruces, and the police department was not prepared for this level of investigation or crime scene analysis. They needed the experience and the resources of the state police in this investigation, and this became one of the most extensive investigations they ever had. Officers were taking unpaid overtime to work on leads. Everyday officers were paired up with detectives, given some leads, and sent to follow up on them. They followed up on every lead. In the days after the murders, Police were receiving more than 100 calls an hour related to the shooting. And as often happens, the tips did eventually dry up and fewer and fewer would come in. None of these tips led to any solid suspects as far as we know. This is still an open case. The detective on this case, now Lieutenant Casey Mullins, said in another interview that they believe there is a chance that this will be solved through a confession. Las Cruces Crime Stoppers is offering a $25,000 reward for any information that helps identify the gunmen and leads to an arrest. There were a few eyewitnesses besides those of the surviving victims. The main one was Stephanie's brother, Steve. He initially sat down and did a computer-based sketch of the two men. Later, he, Stephanie and Melissa all worked with an artist to come up with hand-drawn sketches that Steve says are pretty much spot on. Together, they described two Hispanic men, with one being noticeably older than the other. The older one was in his late 40s to early 50s, 5 foot 5 or 165 centimetres tall, with a medium build and thinning salt and pepper hair. He weighed about 160 to 180 pounds or 72 to 82 kilograms. He was said to speak perfect English with only a slight accent. The younger suspect was described as being in his mid to late 20s, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 8 or 165 to 173 centimetres tall. He was of medium build with dark wavy hair, light coloured eyes and approximately 190 pounds or 86 kilograms. He spoke clear English without an accent. 
We will remember that Melissa described these men as black to the 911 operator, but this is likely because they were dark-skinned. But it's believed that they were Hispanic. The men did nothing to hide their faces, so we have multiple people who saw them and they agree that these sketches are accurate. There was an early report of a man who was on a nearby roof who saw the two men run in an alley west of the bowling alley between the main streets, but I also heard this was discounted. Another may have seen them run across Amador Avenue near the bowling alley. Later, a comment was overheard in the bar. A woman named Irma said the men stayed with her immediately after the murders. They were in a house when they heard the search helicopter going overhead. Detectives made contact with her and she said they were in the bowling alley looking for drugs and she had a piece of information investigators believed only the gunmen would know. She even took a polygraph and she passed it. But the thing with Irma is that she was a drug user at the time and made statements while she was high. When she got clean at one point, she recanted these statements. She said she made them up to make herself sound tough, like she had connections with violent men. Investigators, though, aren't ready to close the book on this idea entirely. They pursued other leads in the meantime, but Irma's information has never been completely discredited. Irma died in 2001 of an apparent drug overdose. The last major sighting seemed to be a hot lead. It was two men, a father and son, who bore a striking resemblance to the composites, and this fit the FBI profile of the killers. It was believed the older man was in charge and the younger man was following his lead, and it's likely they were related, whether father and son or uncle and nephew. Someone called and said the pair were loners who lived in an apartment behind a house and had moved right away after the Bowling Alley Massacre. After tracking down where the men had moved to, investigators learnt the older men had died a few months before the Bowling Alley murders happened. The initial theory is that this was primarily a robbery scenario because we know money was taken and it can't be entirely discounted. It's believed that the men cased the place. They certainly did that morning because Steve Senak saw them. But a witness came forward and said that the men were actually at the bowling alley on Friday night and even talked to Stephanie. So they would have known she was the manager and likely the one who would be there in the mornings. Ida would also say that she felt the men were familiar, like guys who had been at the bowling alley before, no one that she would like know by name. The reason she remembered them over anyone else who came and went from the bowling alley, because as you can imagine, there were many people every single shift, was the way they were acting. They weren't bowling. They weren't playing pool. They were just sitting there watching people come and go, and that stood out to her. And a little off topic, but that reminds me of the Austin yogurt shop murders we covered back in an earlier episode. We have two men supposedly robbing a place of business, but actually murdering everyone in the business. And those men seem to have cased the place as well. With the yogurt shop, they ordered a soda instead of frozen yogurt and sat there doing nothing for a period of time. And that stuck out to people. These guys were in a bowling alley just watching people. Very similar. As far as casing the bowling alley that morning, it's possible they were waiting for Stephanie to unlock the door, but they had seen Stephen go in and out that morning and realized they didn't have to wait. Knowing it was just two young teenagers and two women in the place 
with an unlocked door, they would have had to have known they were vulnerable. But then Stephen Tehran showed up, and now it's harder to control them, especially if Stephen did decide to fight back. But the robbery idea doesn't fit entirely. Ida said she sensed robbery wasn't the primary motive. The men seemed like they were looking for something, even though there was money out in the open as Stephanie was getting it ready for deposit, and there was a safe. They didn't put everyone in the office, grab the money and run like you imagine robbers would. They didn't have all the time in the world. They had seven people to control and the bowling alley was about to be open. But they took the time to search the room, even though the money was obvious. Because everyone had their heads down, we don't know what parts of the office they looked the most and we don't have good clues from their movements. One of the main things that points away from robbery for me is that they didn't disguise themselves. If their goal was to stick up the place without hurting anyone, they would have worn masks. They wouldn't have let the victims see their full faces where they could have been later identified unless they perhaps believed they'd make it out of the country, perhaps to Mexico, quickly enough. But you'd still expect them to do something to hide themselves. It's like they didn't plan to leave witnesses. Killing the four people they knew were in the bowling alley before they entered sounds like it was always part of the plan. This wasn't a robbery gone wrong situation in that one of them got spooked and accidentally shot someone. The way Melissa explains what happened is that they told them that one last time to keep their heads down and then they shot them each in turn. The execution style killings makes it seem odd in a random robbery. Valerie, the two-year-old, was shot in the forehead. Someone looked at that baby full in the face and he killed her. I'd say that even with as many terrible people as there are in the world, there aren't many that would do that heartless act like that. And then there's the fire, which is again a callback to the yogurt shop murders. The fire seemed like a plan to destroy evidence. A fire would alert authorities to the scene more quickly, so it had to have been worth that risk to destroy whatever they were looking to destroy. As for the timing of the robbery, if they wanted Friday night's takings before Stephanie did the deposit on Saturday, they could have broken in overnight, but maybe they needed Stephanie to get into the safe for them. And maybe they hadn't cased the place enough to realize how many people were going to be there that day. But again, if they needed Stephanie to get in the safe and that was their goal, why didn't they take all the money from the safe? It's odd that they didn't take all the money. Why only take some of it? Some would say this is evidence that maybe this was debt-related, like a drug debt. There was a specific amount of money they were looking to take, but I hardly think people who will attempt to kill seven people execution-style, including children, would care that they only take what money is owed to them and not a penny more. That doesn't make sense. It's almost like they just grabbed whatever cash they could from the safe on their way out, but that they were there for something else. The other theory, and the one that fills in some of the holes that the robbery theory doesn't, is that this was a professional hit. Either they thought they'd find their target there, or they were sending a message to their target. After all, there was absolutely no reason to kill Paula or Valerie to silence them as witnesses. They were just too young to have given a description. I mean, you're looking at a two-year-old here, Valerie would not be able to recognise them. And like, as I said... 
The absolutely detached way these shootings were carried out, particularly on Valerie, it makes it feel like a hit. Let's say this was a hit out on someone associated with the bowling alley. The heat of the murders of four people and the grievous injuries of three more, two of whom were able to give descriptions, made the hitmen huge liabilities. It's possible they have not been found because whoever sent them has taken them out since. Ron Sinak, the owner, had the other son, RJ, who worked at the bowling alley, and he worked in the bar attached to the bowling alley. There were rumors that he bought and sold drugs from inside the bowling alley and that he had a cocaine addiction. Perhaps this was a robbery to get the money, believed to be on the site from the drug deals, or that RJ may have gotten into debt with the wrong people. Or maybe they were primarily looking for the drugs. Or possibly RJ was the one the gang wanted to send the message to. RJ did give statements to investigators, but they felt he was distant and had a flat affect when they tried to push to get more information out of him, which you would think would be odd because this is his sister and his niece involved. He died of a drug overdose in 1997. In an odd coincidence to the story, fugitive Oswaldo Corral is wanted in connection with a 2008 shooting death in the parking lot of what used to be the site of Las Cruces Bowl. It's alleged he was committing a robbery at the time. Carl has a known gang affiliation. This is 18 years later, and Carl would have been 12 at the time of the murders at Las Cruces Bowl, so obviously they're not connected, except to say there are active gangs in the area, and the gang Carl was associated with has been operating in the United States since the 1970s. Investigators also considered Ron, the owner of the alley, as possibly being linked. It doesn't really fit that he ordered the robbery or murder seeing his daughter and granddaughter were victims and one of his sons was also there that morning. The thought is more that he had a possible mafia tie and along the lines of him being connected to RJ and the drugs, maybe he was the intended recipient of that message. I think some of the suspicion on Ron comes from the place that he wasn't terribly well-liked. He wasn't from Las Cruces. He was originally from New Orleans. A resident said any time he sat and talked to people, he'd say stuff that offended people. And he didn't socialise at the bowling alley much either, which was expected of him as a local business owner. Ron was a retired military pilot and was in Arizona at the time of the shootings. Police confirmed his alibi that he was playing golf with a friend who he knew from when he was in Vietnam. His friend got the call about what happened on Saturday morning and Ron immediately headed back to New Mexico. There was wide speculation that Ron had some mob ties in his business dealings. People would say he would go out of town all the time for suspicious business dealings but he says he only went out of town to play golf or to work as a caddy for a friend. He spent a lot of money in a fairly flashy way, according to some, and that made people suspicious. Ron also had recently sold his house and was living at the bowling alley. I haven't read why. Maybe he was just between houses or possibly maybe he was in financial trouble. How he acted after the murders is that he said they said between him and the investigations. They said he didn't complete a polygraph. He said he took a polygraph and 
not only one polygraph, but he passed three. He said he asked police daily what was going on with the case. They said, though, he never checked in. And he opened the bowling alley pretty much as soon as he got the carpet replaced and the place cleaned. But he claims that a church league was nagging him to get the place back opened. In 1995, a civil suit was brought against Ron by Gloria Woods, Amy's mother, saying that he had some liability here due to the unlocked doors. As the owner of the bowling alley, he was responsible for his employees' actions, and that action was leaving doors unsecure. Ron's attorneys followed her outside the courthouse during a break and offered her a settlement of $30,000, but Ron wouldn't have to admit fault. She said she would rather take nothing than get $30,000 and him not take responsibility for what happened. She acknowledged that the crime could have happened anyways. They could have broken a window, but that would have alerted to everyone inside that something was happening. In the end, the jurors found him not liable for the crime and Ron relocated back to New Orleans. But despite all of this effort, neither of the two gunmen have ever been caught. So of all the stories that we have looked at for Insight, I think this is up there for me as one of the most horrific. I think because really young children were involved and the way they were killed, it just seems to me like a completely random attack. I really don't believe that a business was cased or if it was, it may have only been for a day. I'm almost 90% sure that these guys are dead somewhere. I think this was a professional hit and they didn't expect so many people to be there. They left witnesses that were able to give descriptions good enough to have pretty accurate sketches made up. I'm sure whoever hired them has already cleaned up the mess by disposing of the hitmen so they can't be traced back to the group that put them into the hit. I do wonder how long they were casing the place, because if Ron was living there, maybe they thought that's who they were going to find there. Maybe this was an attack on him, and maybe he doesn't know why. But when they got in there and they were confronted with the people that they were confronted with, they adjusted and adapted. I can't help but think that phrase, someone knows something, I mean, a girlfriend, a sister, a brother, an uncle, a barista at a coffee shop. Someone saw or heard something suspicious with one or both of these men around that time, and they need to come forward. I think someone is harboring some suspicion on who these people are. I think that's true in any case that someone knows something. But it just takes that courage and just some faith in the police to keep them safe afterwards so that they could come forward. Lisa Repass is married with children and has healed the best she can from her horrific injuries. Ida Hulgeen is on permanent disability and spends her time with her children and grandchildren. Both of these women still suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder from the ordeal, which is completely understandable. In another sad turn of events, Stephanie Senak lived for nine years with her injuries before succumbing to complications from them. Due to the direct link between the shootings and her death, her death is treated as a homicide. Now, the bowling alley is still there. It was sold and the new owner remodelled the business and named it Sun Lanes. It's now called Ten Pin Lanes. 
While this case remains unsolved, tips continue to come in and anyone who has any information should call the Las Cruces Police Department at 575-526-0795 or call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. <laughs>